The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. This week marks the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. There's literally nothing we can say about his music or Nirvana's legacy that hasn't already been said, if not better. So instead, we're going to focus on one of Kurt Cobain's finest moments, one of Nirvana's greatest achievements, and one of the most memorable performances of the past 30 years. This is the History of Alternative podcast. I'm James Van Osdell, and that's John Manley. Come as you are, as you were, as St. Xavier University wants you to be. They educate students for competence, character, and career success through high-quality programs and clear college-to-career pathways, celebrating 175 years of rich mercy and Catholic tradition at SXU. You'll find the best in you. One of the most memorable performances of the past 30 years, MTV Unplugged in New York by Nirvana, recorded four months before Kurt Cobain's death, released posthumously in November of 1994. John Manley, I submit that this was the last important live album released by anyone, anywhere, any genre. I will think about this for that long and completely 100% emphatically agree with you. Um, There are live albums that are just recorded concerts and there are live albums that are truly transcendent of the craft. And this one was absolutely one of those. Um, It was such a moment in time considering it was such a weird thing because up until that point, the Unplugged series, it was wildly successful. It was huge. It was like the biggest thing going at the moment. But this was seems kind of like the first one where the band really, really focused on doing acoustic arrangements of their songs. And well, it, everyone did. Everyone didn't unplug. I mean, Roxette yeah. didn't unplug. Duran Duran didn't unplug. And of course, Eric Clapton, all the big dinosaurs did them. Nirvana was always good about pushing back on fame and commercial viability. And they called all the shots on this, much to MTV's chagrin. Nirvana dictated how this was going to run. It was a basically hit free performance. I mean, Come As You Are was as close to a hit as they played. It looked like a funeral. It felt like a funeral. It was candlelit. There were stargazer lilies. And the Meat Puppets played three of the songs from Meat Puppets 2. It wasn't even a diverse Meat Puppets set. It was so, so not commercial. And by doing things their way, by calling the shots, by dictating the terms of this performance, Nirvana carved out this legendary, iconic moment in time. Yeah, so let's set the stage for it because back when this thing was recorded, I think Nirvana, the excitement about it was can Nirvana actually play their instruments? <laughs> right? Because, you know, the, the, the music snobs uh, beef against grunge was, well, it's just power chords and distortion, which fair and pretty accurate. However... So, so going into this, this, that was like the big boy. Can they, can they do that? Can Kurt sing without Butch Vig, you know, spicing up the vocals and layering and doing all those things. I mean, there was a lot of concern and a lot of curiosity, whether or not this would even work. And like you were saying, literally up until they started, I think even MTV was very apprehensive about what 
was going to happen with none of the hits being played. And MTV yeah. wanted them to play Teen Spirit. They wanted to hear Lithium. They wanted all the big songs. A, cre- and a credit to Kurt and the band for not giving into that. Uh, to your point, like they were always very in touch with what they were trying to do. And he always had his vision of what he wanted it to be. And it's always impressive when you see an artist that like gets it 360, right? Like it's not, they don't mm-hmm. just understand the music or they don't just, they, like he got all of it. He got the aesthetic, he got the sound, he got the performance. The whole thing was truly incredible and exactly right. Like, I don't think there's been a live album since that. I don't want to say does that even, I don't want to go so far to say there hasn't been a live album that's mattered since. But boy, not at, not at this level. I mean, when you think about important live albums in the history of music, I, I would look at something like Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison or Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, or the Allman Brothers at Fillmore East, The Who, Live at Leeds, Budokan, Nir- yeah, all that. Yeah. Nirvana Unplugged is the last legendary one. I mean, there have been good ones in the 21st century. LCD Sound System put out a good one, uh, The Long Goodbye. White Stripes early in the 21st century had under great Northern Lights, but this was the last truly consequential live album that we in pop culture have received. Why do you think that is like what, what, what made this for you? What makes this like the greatest uh, at the very top level? I think this is a band at the peak of its power. This is true. I think this is this may be controversial. I think this is Nirvana's best moment on album. I think this is better than In Utero. I think this is better than Nevermind and Bleach. I think this is a very clear and concise vision of who they are and what they wanted to be. Uh, I, I think it stands, it, as live albums go, it is one complete performance. A lot of live albums are collections of performances from different nights, different locations, different places, and it feels disjointed. This is one complete artistic statement. So much so that it, when this album came out in the 90s i was working on the radio it never felt totally honest to just play man who sold the world or the acoustic all apologies or where did you where did you sleep last night because to me it all had to be placed in context it was this one whole body of work this one full performance that made this profound artistic statement so i I guess it's kind of a runaround answer to your question i just think it's a consistent thorough vision start to finish of an artist at the peak of its power yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. I, I think for me, um, what sets it apart from anything else is it's such it's such a validation of that band. Um, all of the questions about their, you know, musicianship and and all of that was like destroyed. Like they, all of those arguments were just shattered. See, I don't remember those before. arguments. I, I don't remember that. I when this album came out, when the the two albums before it came out. I thought everyone agreed that th- these guys were epic fucking songwriters and changing the world. And that that's what I remember. I don't think anyone, it's not like some boy band thrown together and put on stage it, Nirvana from, from the get go, especially when teen spirit broke was always perceived as the real deal. Yeah. I just think when you look at their songs, they seem sort of three chords in the truthy. And, and this <laughs> just changed all of that to me where it was like, wow, these guys are like, really good at Mm -hmm. what they do like they're really good at the craft not just you know it's the 90s vibe right like they're just a couple of bums in their you know jeans from that they haven't washed in six months 
cranking out fuzzy chords and Kurt screaming like he's just gargled with razor blades, right? And then you come to this and it's subtle and it's intimate and it's it's no more it's it's not the smells like teen spirit kicking you in the face through your speakers anymore. It's it's Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam and Kurt's holding your hands going, Yeah, I messed up too, right? <laughs> I mean Well, and to your point, this performance delivered on the promise of what unplugged was supposed to be this showed that this band when you strip away all the all the feedback all the reverb this was a very raw and authentic band and that that's the whole idea of an unplugged performance of stripping things down is seeing the songwriting feeling the emotion they delivered it and i love how there was so much concern going into it over whether or not this was going to work right because um the biggest concern was Dave Grohl. Um, at the time, he was he, he wasn't still a teenager, but he was a baby, <laughs> and he was he was the you know the live version of uh, Animal from the Muppets, right? At the time, he just was bang those things as fast and as hard as you can, and there was a lot of concern over whether or not he would be able to like of all the things that could have gone wrong uh, with Nirvana at unplugged. It's, fu- it's always funny to me that like the biggest concern at the time was could Dave Grohl be quiet, <laughs> which is legit because the louder the drummer plays, the more the bass guitarist and the guitarist want to amp up what they're doing. And so you go from this intimate controlled situation to something where the voices are raised in the building and then the, the volume is going up. So they had to tone Dave Grohl down because he was setting the tone. Yeah. And, and anyone that's ever jammed with other people on instruments knows that rule where it's everyone just tries. It, it eventually just evolves into everyone just tries to be louder than the other guy. <laughs> right. You know, where do you um, what's like your highlight? Like if you had to hmm. pick one moment off that record or that performance where you go, that's it, man, that's the part. Where do you go? Well, I think the obvious one is where did you sleep last night? The version of Lead Bellies in the Pines. I think as a final statement from Nirvana, it doesn't get more raw, honest, passionate. That's a true showstopper. I mean, the band had the option to do an encore after that, but the consensus was we did it. We can't beat that. That was that was it. We're done. I think that it's still, I have the the record behind me. I was listening to it again today. I, I can listen to that anytime, any day. It just, it's such a moving, it, Kurt's voice cracks in the middle of that song. It just, it feels so legitimate. That to me stands out. I also love uh, the Vaseline's cover. You mentioned Jesus don't want me for a sunbeam because the accordion sounds really cool. I think it's one of the signature moments of the album or the performance. Yeah, I I was hoping you weren't going to say that because that's where I was going to go. <laughs> I think, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just kind of figure all apologies was the last tune off that, but it was, where did you sleep last night? And you're, you nailed it. Like when his voice broke and just like, and it just hung there. What always strikes me about that is how he hit that note, the voice breaks and then there's silence. And like, not even the crowd got in the way, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, watch any live event ever. And there's always some dingus yelling at some, at the worst possible <laughs> moment, <Yes>. right? <laughs> you know, and at this point it was, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Well, and because this was an MTV taping, 
the band had the option. If they didn't like a take, they could have redone it. But they left everything as is. They kept it, kept it real, so to speak. And that, was, is that a, was the right move. Which is a great thing to bring up, too, because that, yeah, that, that was a one take. That was a, it was a live show. Like you heard the live show. I'm sure they clipped a little stuff in between tunes and whatnot, but it was front to back, no redos, no retries, no, let me do that again. It was off you went. And my, I always think back when I watch the Unplugged in New York, I love watching Pat Smear because he's just the happiest dude. He likes, he's so happy to be there for all of the obvious right reasons, but, but it's always funny to me where it's like, you know, Kurt is so serious and so mm-hmm. melancholy. And then sitting right next to him is Pat Smear, who's just like, this is so cool, man. This is so cool. <laughs> I, I've always, yeah, th- that vibe that Pat Smear puts out, just that joyful vibe, smiling while performing, just living his 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 best life. Yeah, it's incredible. And this is the album that caused every radio station and all of us to do lounges from that point forward. It was always, <laughs> it was really true. It was, we got to re- we got to try to recapture this somehow. We got to try to find a band that can do this again, right? Because everybody wants that moment. That's that's every lounge that's ever been done since then is under the hopes that they get some sort of moment like any part of Unplugged in New York, right? <laughs> I think what's interesting, one of the many interesting things about this is here's a band at the peak of its power. Here's a band that is larger than life as of when they went into MTV studio to record this. Kurt Cobain was nervous. He wanted to make sure that the front row or front rows were stacked with familiar faces because he just didn't want the pressure of looking at strangers while being that up close to people. This was a new format for them and a very strange one for them. He, he had lots of self-doubt around this. Of course, the end of the story is they crushed it, but it's interesting. We, we forget sometimes that even the most stratospheric level artists have those moments, have those feelings. Obviously, Kurt had a lot going on emotionally, but they're, they're just humans that happen to do something supernaturally good on stage that night. Yeah, and maybe that's more to what I was trying to say uh, earlier when I was saying that the buildup to this was like, could they pull this off? It wasn't so much could they play acoustic, but we didn't have any really um, any reference point to go, can yeah. they do acoustic stuff? Like, is that a thing? And to hear it, I mean, for it to come out the way it did was just bonkers. Um, This is sort of a difficult question, but I think it's valid. Is the fact that Kurt passed so close to after this happened, does that amplify this even more? Or does it make it better than it really is because of that? No, it doesn't make it better. I mean, as someone who lived through it, Originally, I it was always this game-changing landmark, insert adjective here, watermark, watershed performance. I, I think the fact that it did look like a funeral, I think the fact that it was the last time we saw Kurt perform lends a little bit to the legend. But on its own, if, if Kurt Cobain were still alive today, I think we'd still be talking about this as the last truly important live album. I would agree with you. I, I, I'm always just brought back whenever I listen to Where'd You Sleep Last Night. That song and that performance, whether it's true or not, I think maybe I just like to believe this, but because it's poetic and all that kind of crap. But it's like 
that sounded like a man who left it all. Like that was like, he's, that was it. I, I said everything I need to say. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true. And I doubt it was, that's a very, you know, it's a little meta, right? But listen to that song, <laughs> listen to that whole performance. And that is a dude who gave whatever he had left. He, you know, it's, you leave it on the floor, right? Like that's, that was done that night. It was incredible. And just to go over the track list a little deeper, there were only eight Nirvana songs of the 14 songs performed that night. Again, going back to this notion of being completely against commercial considerations. We mentioned the three Meat Puppet songs off Meat Puppets 2, which is about as deep a pull as you can get if you're going for the Meat Puppets. Um, The David Bowie cover, which now is very much part of public consciousness and awareness, wasn't exactly a a common Bowie song when they pulled that one out. I mean, title track of, of that album, but to the mainstream, that was not a familiar Bowie song to pull out. The song by the Vaselines, as mentioned, amazing song, um, about as obscure as it gets. The Lead Belly song. This is this is a band doing whatever the hell they wanted. And that, to me, is part of the appeal, too, as we talk about what makes this so enduring. It's 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 just so honest. It's exactly what they wanted it to be. Um, It's sometimes I think it's a great reminder of. Sometimes let the art trust the artist to make mm-hmm. the art and, and let them let them go because the more you try to corral it and go like, hey, we need we want to hear smells like teen spirit and we want to hear, you know, uh heart-shaped box or whatever, the less opportunities you give them to get weird. And especially with live performances, yes, you want to hear the hit, of course you do. But the real magic is is in those moments in between when they get to kind of just do what they want. And this album, more so than anything, proves that Kurt had the vision and if allowed to just fully exercise how he wanted to do it, home run after home run every time. So what's the best Nirvana song from this set? We talked about two of the covers. What's the best Nirvana song from Unplugged? I mean... On a Plane is like one of my favorite Nirvana songs. It's a great song. Period. <laughs> so that goes up there pretty high. I think as far as Nirvana tunes themselves off of this goes, I feel like it's probably all apologies for me, but you could easily talk me into something in the way. That's where I was going. It's, it's a darker feeling song, especially in this set. It leads into those Meat Puppet songs. There, there's something that feels more emotional and haunting about that than anything else. Well, it was the, it was the cello, right? That's anytime you add a that's cello, it. that's instant, it. Yeah. <laughs> instant depression. That's like, that's how it goes, man. <laughs> and it's just amazing to me, John, how timeless this truly is. As I probably mentioned in this podcast before, I have teenagers, uh, my oldest, very much into this album, very much into everything, the, the foundations of how this all came together. This is an album that now is almost 30 years old and it still just hits like a, like blood force trauma to people hearing it for the first time. It's, you're so right. It's so true. And it's, it's such an interesting thing because people that lived through it probably, I don't know if they would hold unplugged as like, they would go like, you gotta listen to Smells Like Teen Spirit or, you know, the real 
nerds like myself would go like, oh no, bleach is the one. (laughs) (laughs) But if you put all those out today under no context, no preconceived anything, you just said, you give them to your son, here's five records, listen to them. You're right. This is probably the one that everyone walks away going, holy shit, these guys are legit. It's one that makes you think, oh, they don't make them like that anymore. The History of Alternative Podcast is recorded at the 101 WKQX Studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs. Stay in school. 